Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. As you know, I've been plugging the book that's coming out in September. I include our listeners to um, buy the book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Leave a review on Amazon. Um, I've been noticing it's one of the top releases in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and one of the top sellers. So we're grateful for you, our listeners, that are buying the book and sharing it with others. I walked into a local bookstore here in Salt Lake in early September, Siegel Book, and found a copy there. So for the first time this week, I have a physical copy of the book, but it's a tribute to all of you that contributed stories, our LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and parents. So it's a pretty long book. It's 300 pages, um, but it's really a needed book because it brings so many voices. Um, This podcast that we're doing today is with my friend, Jenny Richards. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thanks. Um, Just by way of introduction, Jenny is a married mother of four kids. Her um, she lives in Salt Lake City, not far from me, the neighboring rivalry high school, to be exact, <laughs> that usually beats us up, but we won't get into that. She has children in high school, junior high, and an elementary school. Um, she grew up in an active LDS home with seven children. She is the oldest, and we're going to be talking about her younger sister, Emily, spelled E-M-I-L-E-E. So everybody kind of see that name spelled that way in their minds. I think it's important. Um, Emily has died by suicide um, in January of 2019. So this is Jenny talking about her younger sister, who in prayer before we started, we invited to be here with us. And we hope that as you listen to this podcast, wherever you're listening, that you will continue to feel Emily um, because she's here and her work continues. She um, identified or identifies as non-binary and lesbian. She came out about 10 years ago. Um, she went on to get a mass, uh, psychology degree at Westminster and a master's degree in neuropsychology at the University of Oregon and was working on her PhD when she died by suicide. She was very open about her orientation and gender ID, identity and her mental illness. And her older sister, Jenny, is the only active member of her family um, in the church. And and, um, she has just felt called um, to continue to be a voice for LGBTQ within our church and doing that to honor Emily. So this will be a podcast talking about how we can better support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. We have work to do in that space in our restored church, and many allies have felt impressed to step forward, Jenny being um, another one. And it's it's my honor to have Jenny on the podcast. I'm already emotional, as you can tell. <laughs> um, Jenny um, has um, really wonderful talents. She, if those of you that are familiar with Juilliard, which I am because my wife taught me about Juilliard, is... Um, a school in Manhattan. Julie, um, Jenny has an undergraduate degree in piano and a master's degree in piano and is a classically trained pianist and composer. We're going to talk about a song that she wrote in honor of Emily, and we're going to play that song. Um, it'll be spliced into the podcast at the end of the podcast. That song is really important, and Jenny will be talking about that song throughout the podcast. And we'll also link to a hard copy of the sheet music. Jenny owns the copyright, obviously, on this sheet music. She wrote it. (laughs) 
Uh, but she will, she's offering it free because she wants this song to scale and to come into the homes of many people. It's a great song, and I've listened to it many times. Um, anything you'd like to add from a bio standpoint? No, I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy that we've connected. I am really happy we've connected. So maybe just introduce your family, not not your extended family, just your own family a little bit. Just Sure. Your well, husband and your kids. Sure. My husband's name is Nate, and he is a great guy. He is my partner in every way, and he adds his support to this endeavor today. Um, he is in the medical field, so he's been, you know, COVID-friendly and working hard to protect and help and heal and grow. And Good. So it's been an interesting season, for sure. And then we have four kids. We have two boys and two girls. and. They keep me running, and I love them so, so much. Talk about, um, I, I just, I want to talk about Emily. Introduce Emily to us. Maybe introduce Emily, um, you know, just introduce Emily to us. Okay. Um, like you said, Richard, I'm the oldest in my family of siblings. Uh, there's four girls and three boys, and Emily was the youngest, and a very dynamic, creative bunch. We we are and we were. Um, Emily, as the youngest, kind of had a lot to look up to, a lot to follow. And she did it so well and in her own unique way. She is was funny, was uh, creative in every way. Uh, she was a violinist. She was an artist, a painter, a writer, a deep, deep thinker, very witty. Um, a couple of memories I have of her. I, I'm 12 years older than she is. So than she is. Um, and I went to college when she was six. So wow. she was little and she loved my husband who at the time we were writing, he was on a mission. She wrote him a bunch of funny letters, all misspelled in kindergarten handwriting. And every time I'd come home from New York, we had this game where she would hide and try to spank me you know, on the stairs as I ran out to the car. And it was this, you know, years we spanked each other as we, it was just a teasy thing. And then one other funny memory when she was very small, I said, Emily, why don't you come back to New York with me? Like you can fit in a suitcase. You're little. She said, I can. I said, sure. Just hop in. I'm sure it will be fine. You'll just have to be under the plane, you know, with the bags, but it'll get you there. And then we can hang out in New York. She's like, okay, okay. And we, we sort of played along until we got to the airport. And this is back in the day when you come right in and at the gate where I was checking my bag, I said, Oh, this is my sister. She's going to hop in the suitcase. And the flight attendant said, Oh, great. How exciting. Do you want to hop in now? And Emily looked up at me and got these big crocodile tears. Like, do I really have to go through with this? And it was then that I said, Oh, we were just kidding. But she honestly was serious about getting in that suitcase. That's cool. Isn't that funny? That is cool. Was she a pianist? Nope. She was a violinist. She was a violinist. And it was her language, definitely one of the ways that her spirit spoke. And it's definitely one of the ways that my spirit speaks. And so I continue to think that she is close to me when I, when I play. And I felt that very strongly. Yeah. Talk about the age that Emily came out and tell us how she identifies. So she came out slowly. It wasn't a grand, you know, announcement. It was quietly. It was to certain people 
and you know, a few more people. I don't know who she came out to first, but she, she identified under the umbrella of queer, which is an umbrella term, you know, for, for sexuality and gender. And as a queer person, she was gay, or I should say lesbian. And then she also considered herself non-binary. So does that make sense? It does. Okay. It, define non-binary for our l- listeners. Sure. So non-binary is where she doesn't feel a strong sense of gender. She's on the spectrum of gender, but she wasn't sure that she was fully female. Is that a clear answer? It is. Okay. And so that would refer not to her biology because mm-hmm. biologically she was fe- female. Mm-hmm. She And I'm going to use present terms here. Mm-hmm. I like to do that with mm-hmm. people that have on this side of the veil, on the other side. So she biologically is female, but when you say she did, she just didn't feel female between her ears. Some people talk about, mm-hmm. you know, my core essence or my feeling mm-hmm. about myself was not female in her case. It was right. on the spectrum to use your right. words. Right. Her core essence, I think is a good way to put it. And then her sexual orientation was, was towards women. So she identified as lesbian or gay. Mm-hmm. But I also think she, if she were here, she would tell us that she, she loved freely and maybe there wasn't a box in which she fit, but she was open and honest about loving freely and, and advocating for others that felt the same. So talk about her journey with uh, mental health. And I'm careful to separate these two because some people would say one leads to the other Mm -hmm. or they're, and I'm really careful about that, Mm -hmm. that these are two different journeys Mm -hmm. Talk about um, her mental health and some of the things she talked openly about. Sure. You know, something I have admired about Emily is that she fought this mental illness for so long. And while she was fighting, she was studying the brain. So she was researching psychology, researching addiction, researching depression and anxiety. And I mean, she was the first to try any new therapies, any new treatments. She wanted to learn. She wanted to grow and not just for herself to heal, but to help others who were also fighting this battle. And I, I brought something she wrote that I might read to you, Richard, if that's okay. She posted this, you know, several years ago, but in a very open acknowledgement of her mental illness. And she wanted to post this for others who also were struggling. And unusually, She posted what was beautiful about mental illness. Often we hear all of the hard things, which are very real. But what she wrote in this post that really struck me were the things that she was grateful for because she suffered from mental illness. So this this is Emily's words. She said, I've decided to get the ball rolling with some positive things for which I have no choice but to give acknowledgement to the fact that I am currently diagnosed with mental illness. I do so in the hopes of promoting awareness along with the notion that it doesn't define anyone's humanity, but it does shape and strengthen us. And here's her list of things she's grateful for. One, I have experienced, and because of one of my disorders, still often experience an abnormally powerful spectrum of emotions, which helps me empathize in a variety of contexts and with diverse people. Two, because of this inherent intensity, of my emotions, I rarely do something half-baked. If I'm in, I'm all in. This also goes for loyalty. Three, my moods switch often and often with little or no no warning. This has helped me learn to be more adaptable and flexible. Four, 
My experience of the world is not always accurate, which has led me to continually question things around me. This skepticism will hopefully help me to become a good clinical scientist. Five, having to navigate a world in which people function one way while my mind functions in a very different way, I have become skilled at identifying human cognitive patterns that underlie and give rise to such differences. Six, mental illness forces me to confront myself on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, which in time leads to self-improvement. Seven, accepting my diagnosis has helped me overcome some of my own biases and stigmas, as well as reconcile with and learn from my past. Eight, mental health treatment ignited my passion for visual art, along with the creative outlet I enjoy from it. Nine, because of my illness, I have seen unfathomable amounts of love and generosity which I might not have recognized before. 10, through treatment, I have met people with the most incredible, compassionate, creative, brilliant, unique minds, and I would never, ever trade these experiences or relationships. So there you have it, 10 good things that wouldn't be quite the same if mental illness were not a part of my story, end quote. It's really beautiful. Share with us your thoughts on this. You know, I think this was 100% her sincerity. 100% her voice, and 100% what she believed is that there was always something good in every hardship. The last post that she left on her Facebook when she passed away, she deleted everything beyond this post, and she wrote gratitude and what she was grateful for, grateful for her family, her siblings, for music, for her life and experiences. And I believe that she felt that gratitude to the very end. Yes, she suffered. She suffered so, so much, but she'll always be an example to me of of finding the silver lining in difficult things. On these 10, are there anything that, are there some that are your favorites on this list, Jenny? Well, I love that she talks about her illness giving her uh, space to be creative because sometimes I think it is in our struggle that we yield our most creative work. And I think that was the case for her. I also love that she, she sees people that she would not have met if she didn't walk the road of being mentally ill. And that's pretty cool. I think, isn't it interesting who God puts in our path in the midst of really hard things? Sometimes those are our angels. Those are the ones that he's specifically sent for us. And I think Emily felt that in her life. So I I might add one more thing that she said that she left us with that is very sacred, but I really think leaves us with work to do. She says, let's see if I can find this. I firmly believe, I remain in fervent advocation and firmly believe that we need to work for the pursuit of better understanding, earlier intervention, and anti-stigmatization of mental and brain illness. I wish upon no one the state of mind that decides to end one's life. It is my hope that society will develop a means to prevent those with psychological afflictions from ever getting to that point. Suicide is often a permanent solution to a temporary problem. She left us with that. And I think that to me is her saying, go to work. This is not a, this is not a permanent solution. Others don't have to suffer this way. Go to work, Jenny. And so that's part of my mission is to, is to be her voice. Tell us more about that feeling you have. You know, it's, it's something that's so deeply sacred, but I 
feel that she and I are connected in purpose. And yes, I, I loved her in her life and I, I fought for her and I prayed for her and I wept with her. But in her death, I feel that there is a power that she has maybe in her expanded mind and in her expanded capacity that has fueled me with a desire to speak and see and lift. And I often say, let me be interrupted with people who need help. Let me be on the floor with them, on my knees with them. I, I feel this in such a fervent way that it's bigger than me. And yes, I know the spirit works on this, but I think Emily is in a partnership with the spirit to help me be her voice and help do some work that maybe I'm qualified to do because I am a member of the church. Maybe there are people in the church that I can unique, uniquely help with her and by her and for her, you know. I believe that. I believe you're doing that already. And I believe this podcast will reach a lot of people um, that that need the words that you and Emily can share. These these lists of 10 are, you know, you sent them to me ahead of time, Jenny, and there's no there's no shame in any of these. There's no stigma. There's no, this is just full of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, I have more empathy. I can have increased intensity of my emotions. I don't do things half-baked, um, baked, um, and just overcome my own biases and stigma. Um, I just love this. And this is really hard mm-hmm. stuff. I it's mean, really I hard that if stuff. Emily were here, she'd say, I'd love not to have mental yeah, illness. Right. But in this journey, she is this incredibly bright person seeing the silver lining in mm-hmm. this really hard road. Mm-hmm. Which takes so much effort, I think, because I know when you're, when you're depressed, and I've had bouts of depression on and off through my life, the first thing that you lose is your energy just don't have the energy to do anything or feel anything often. So for her to get so vulnerable as to post that into the world and say, this is what I'm going to gain. It's, it's remarkable. It took a lot of work. I should probably also add that she, Emily was raised as a member of the church, but left the church. And Do I think that she wasn't spiritual? No way. Do I think that she didn't have connection to the divine? No way. I think she had so much spirit and heart and focus on higher powers and the universe. I think she was one of the most deeply spiritual people that I learned so much from. Yes, the church did not fit her. And time will tell and wounds will heal and things will be made right. But her story was her story, and it was beautiful and, and faithful in her own way. There's another post that um, I'm reading here just about, um, it starts with, I'm an openly queer person. I don't know mm-hmm. if you want to share that at some point in the podcast sure. now or later. Sure, I'm happy to share. I, I, the more I can read of her own words, I think the better I'll be able to express what I need to express. So... Um, this is again, Emily's words. And I think that as members of the church, we can learn something from these words. I know that I can, and I have. So Emily, again, this is Emily as an openly queer person. I have been lucky enough to not in my adulthood 
experience a lot of overt, violent queer phobia. Don't get me wrong. From people within my broad social network, I've personally experienced open and directed slander on countless occasions, threats of violence, and other blatant and harmful actions. But all, thing cons- all things considered, I have come out, no pun intended, on the other end, relatively scathe-free from these incidents. However, that is not to say that I am scathe-free. Often now in my adulthood, 10 years after beginning my slow process of coming out, it is the coded comments, assumptions, and downright inaccurate beliefs which spill out in my presence that do the most emotional harm to me. And it's this way because I typically have already let these people into my emotional sphere and my personal life. Yes, political agendas and queerphobic laws are incredibly harmful, but they get at my anger. They motivate me to fight back. It's the, most, the more subtle but equally or more emotionally damaging instances that sometimes affect me because I'm exhausted with educating people. I'm exhausted with opening myself up and then looking past the ignorance of the people I let in. I'm exhausted from being defined by my sexual orientation and gender identity. I am exhausted. But I will push through the exhaustion to always educate people and always give people the benefit of the doubt. And in so doing, I implore straight people to at least meet me halfway. I implore them to check themselves and sometimes independently educate themselves instead of relying 100% on queer folks to patiently educate them and overlook their ignorance. Do not fully rely on your queer friend, your gay friend, your trans friend to do all of the work. We are not your token queer friend. We are not a disclaimer. We are your friend, period. And there is so much more to us than simply our otherness. I say all of this with love. I am proud of who I am, and I appreciate the overwhelming number of people who totally get it and those who are sincerely trying to get it. That's the end of her words. That's a really powerful segment. Share with your thoughts your thoughts on this section? Well, I think that in the spirit of full disclosure, I was part of this. I was part of the not understanding and the same. I was. And I, I want to tell you, Richard, about a beautiful experience that happened before Emily's death. But I would say for five years after knowing Emily was gay, I just didn't talk about it. We would talk about everything else. We would talk about my kids. We would talk about her work. We would talk about how she was feeling. We you know, mentally, we'd talk about current events, but I did not acknowledge her as a gay person for a long time. And this is a a very holy, holy thing I'd like to share. I have a friend named Holly. She's my neighbor and her son is gay. And he came out to her and Holly's response was so love-filled that when she told me about it, I had deep regret deep sadness and a a real come to Jesus moment where I thought, I have got to fix this. I have got to do better. I have this little sister that needs my love and my full acceptance. And I called Emily and said, I would love to take you to lunch on your birthday. And of course she agreed. And I wept and said, I've learned something from a friend. And what I've been taught is that I haven't been open with you and how much I love you because you are you with everything you have and everything you are, and the fact that you are gay makes me love you. You're, you're beautiful, and I love you. And I, you know, I'm not doing this conversation justice, but she cried, and she said, you don't know how much this means. And what was the most beautiful thing about that? Me finally acknowledging and, and saying, I see you, and I love you, and I, I know you, and I love you. 
the most beautiful thing from that was the relationship that it allowed us to have. This was six weeks before she, she passed away. I didn't know it. And we had texts and calls and a lot of deep, beautiful, meaningful time. So can we do better? Yes. Can we be more openly loving? Yes. We have a lot of work to do, I think. That's really, you know, I know your friend Holly and she's awesome. Mm -hmm. You know her obviously better than I mm -hmm. do. Um, but I love that that conversation sparked you reaching out to Emily. Mm -hmm. And you said some things, I see you, I love you, I love this part about you, you're my sister. Why was that, if Emily were here, why would she say that lunch meant so much to her? I think it's because I finally openly acknowledged that she was gay. She was queer. We didn't ever talk about it because I was too uncomfortable. And she was probably respecting that. She was. She was respecting that, but I didn't give her my full support. I would tell her I loved her. But I never acknowledged that part of her. I can't tell you how much I am grateful that she didn't pass away without me having that conversation. I, I would have, it would have wrecked me. And so I think there's so many of us in the church that are, you know, struggling to know what to say or how to act or what to do. Or I think we've got to do better about being fully loving. It's not our place to, to figure it out. It's only our place to love. And maybe I can share a thought on Mary Magdalene. I'd love to do that. I, I hang that, hang, don't let me forget that. Okay. I, okay. I just, I love this. I love some of the things Emily's teaching us in this post. Um, when I read it, I, I started this section about it can't be queer people's responsibility to educate. It can be exhausting for them. Derek mm -hmm. Knox mm -hmm. taught me this concept a couple of years ago that it's exhausting mm -hmm. to sort of be the token queer person and sort of be asked all these questions, some that may not be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Emily, of course, is glad to open up to you. Her dear sister would love to talk about this, but it's on straight people to sort of educate themselves mm -hmm. um, so that they can meet the burdens and lift and help and serve mm -hmm. queer people versus queer people existing to educate straight people. Right. Some of that's appropriate. And I've had some wonderful queer people educate me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to just shut that door, but it can, your sister does a great job of, of articulating that can be very difficult. Right. And I like that she says, we are not a disclaimer. Like, <laughs> we are not your gay friend, your queer friend. We are your friend. Don't distinguish us by fitting. our otherness. We are people. We have gifts. And I feel that we can't put people in boxes. I, I have this quote by Elder Holland. Can I read it to you, Richard? Go for it. In this church, there is an enormous amount of room and scriptural commandment for studying and learning, for comparing and considering, for discussion and awaiting further revelation. We all learn line upon line, precept upon precept with the goal being authentic, religious, faith-informing, genuine, Christ-like living. In this, there is no place for coercion or manipulation, no place for intimidation or hypocrisy. And I feel like that's what Emily's asking us. Just, just love us, love me, not for my otherness. Wait for further revelation and just love, you know? I don't think you sold out anything in our church to talk about Emily's gayness at lunch. <laughs> I think we both kind of laugh about that, but it's not like 
we've ever, I love that quote from Elder Hall. It's not like we've ever had teachings from our church not to talk to people about mm-hmm. parts, aspects of how they're created. And I love that you said you love this part about Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, back to Emily's words, it's interesting. She says the hardest things are often the coded comments, mm-hmm. the assumptions which spill out in the presence that do the most emotional harm to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Emily be referring to. Maybe you can, but sometimes we say, you know, we're under it. I'm thinking of Sunday school right now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we say we're under attack. And somebody suggested to me, whenever we say that, we ought to say, who are we, who is attacking mm-hmm. us and what is mm-hmm. the threat? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of members will, will assume that could be LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Right, and if right. You, and so, and if you've got LGBTQ people sitting in that Sunday school class, that's really, that, that constant narrative of signing these coded comments mm-hmm. that people like them um, are an outside threat. So I think we have to be careful. We, these are the last days, Satan is real, mm-hmm. but I think it's much, much more intellectually, I don't know the right words. It's just better to say who is the threat. Yes, I agree. And mm-hmm. what is the threat? Right. So if it's sex trafficking, you know, it's sex traffickers are the threat. And this is what they're doing. They're trafficking children. Right. And this is how we deal with that threat. Or ISIS is a threat. This is what they're trying to accomplish. Right. This is how we deal with it. So then we don't have these kind of nebulous fear-based comments that just make us, because I think the gospel of Jesus Christ should fill us with hope right. and take fear. And right now there's a lot of fear right. in our political world. And sometimes there's kind of fear-based conversations at church right. that leave us all with fear. And I don't think Elder Holland does that very much and Elder Uchtdorf do right. that very much. Right. And I think maybe two thoughts to, to piggyback on that. One is sometimes I think that we have this narrative that we're the good guys and that there's bad guys. Yes. And I've been thinking a lot about, am I the good guy? Am I the good guy? I think sometimes we need to do a good hard look at ourselves. And maybe things aren't quite so black and white, you know? And the other thing that maybe I'd add is a a potential coded comment. Sometimes I think we as a faith group struggles with gender and sexuality in the same camp as, you know, a chronic illness or the loss of a child or that it's a trial or a struggle. But if we don't know that struggle personally, I don't think we can put it in that camp. I think there are a lot of people that are gay and that are are under the umbrella of queer that feel that that is part of their divine identity. And maybe that's harmful to to classify it as a struggle. You know, I don't have Emily here to correct me on this, but. Some have said, you know, when we most people don't like this term struggling with same-sex attraction, but some people I've heard sort of say, that's your struggle, not mine. Interesting. (laughs) Um, You're struggling Mm -hmm. with my same-sex attraction. I'm just fine with it. Thank you very much. And it's sort of putting us both Mm -hmm. on the same moral footing and Mm -hmm. taking shame. Right. Right. We just aren't in a place to cast judgment. We're only in a place to offer love. That's it. That's all we can do. I'm so glad you had these six weeks with Emily. And I think I invite all of our listeners to do what Jenny did. And if you have LGBTQ people in your life, um, to do what Jenny did, especially if they're family. Mm-hmm. And I'd say a prayer. And if you feel impressed to do this, I would reach out and ask somebody to tell them about their experience. Now, your sister kind of said that can be triggering sometimes, you know, to be the, but this is different. If it's a close family friend, 
a close family member. I agree. I think people want to share this part about them with someone that they know loves them. And I think what I would hope for others in light of what Emily has left me with, dig deep within yourself and find love and find a genuine love for people that maybe you're not sure about their journey. Maybe you don't need to be sure about their journey to love them with so much sincerity and depth. Pray for more love. Try to see them as God sees them. You know, I think, and yes, we're speaking about LGBTQ, but honestly, just we're all just here in this broken world trying to be our best. And again, all we can do is love better. That's it. So whatever that means to you in your life, maybe there's a way to love somebody better. You know, that's what I'm going to keep trying to do. So, And I love your point about not seeing people outside the church as an other group or yes. oh. just see us all as the same human family. And I think if there's anything I've learned from watching my siblings and parents leave the church, and I honor each one of them in their own stories and their own reasons, I don't feel, I used to feel this great desire to, you know, bring them back. And now I feel like they are who they are and they have gifts and they have places they need to be and people they need to touch in the world that they're in and the life that they're in. And again, all I can do is love them. And I do, I admire them. And I, I will do my best as a member of the church an all in member of the church to live my covenants and to keep the commandments and follow the savior. But Again, I know I keep saying this, all I can do is love them for who they are, for where they are, for what they can offer me, what I can offer them. Is that more relieving than where you used to be with your family? There's less tension. And they may not even know that there was tension because it was all internal tension. But everyone has their agency and everyone is beautiful and everyone has a path. And I, I do believe in the concept of a straight and narrow path, but I also like the image of a lighthouse and a vast ocean. And we're all in this sea and we all have a destination, but maybe it's not as straight and narrow as I once thought it was. We all have this beautiful journey that leads to the same light. And, you know, this is just my own opinion, but I just think find, find the beauty in everyone's light and learn. I don't feel that I have the trophy of I have it right. I'm doing my best and so are they. I love the grace in that. I love the relieving feeling of that is I, you're not responsible for your siblings, for your parents' exaltation, salvation. You can't control this. And, and ultimately, it's their heavenly parents right. and our Savior. But you are completely in control of your ability to love them. Exactly. And so to me, that's I just love that concept and how relieving that is and, and how it fills me with just hope. And less fear. I don't worry right, right. about people. I just, I do what you do. And I love the lighthouse visual. I do think love, you can say you love someone, but to really love someone, it takes a humility to learn from them. And I think that each member in my family has taught me deeply sacred truths that are all added into sort of the heart vision of who I am as a disciple, hopefully a disciple. But there's humility in love and a willingness to be taught. And I think if we love others with the intent to change them to be more like us, you're going to miss a lot of really important things. I just, I really agree with that 
And I think this non-agenda love, when people are on the receiving end of non-agenda love, then they are, then they're the most likely to open up to you if something changes. Mm -hmm. So I found that, you know, people in my life that may over time, because they've been on the receiving end, hopefully of my non-agenda love, feel safe opening up to me. And perhaps in a situation where they recognize they need a course correction, and I haven't sort of built this narrative where they've got to dig in their heels and sort of justify because I've just supported them. Yeah, right. And it's a little easier to open up and say, you know, maybe I, maybe you're a safe person to talk to right. about a possible course correction. So I think this non-agenda love allows us to influence people at the right time in, the, in a way that's the most helpful. This is a quote I read on the podcast. It reminds me of your sister, Emily, but it's really for all those that are working through mental illness, and it's the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. um, a minister service, and Emily is a minister, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering mm -hmm. about which he or she speaks. Mm -hmm. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's never been there. So Emily on a public Facebook post, being vulnerable to share these 10 things. Mm -hmm. I just, it's really remarkable. But then she has helped so many people. There are people on the earth right now, and you know that, mm -hmm. that are better off because of Emily. Right. And, and her work through what you're doing continues mm -hmm. um, to heal people. So let's go to Mary Magdalene or whoever you sure. want to go next. Sure. Well, there's a thought that I, I, fought with within my own mind. And I know that others have wrestled with this too, Richard. And it's the question of supporting our church leaders wholeheartedly and supporting our LGBTQ brothers and sisters wholeheartedly. There is so much tension in that. There is. And I've thought about this and I have, you know, I told you before we started recording the podcast that I learned something from Mary Magdalene. <laughs> So let me give a little context here, because to me, this is an answer to this tension. So Christ was crucified on a Friday, and he was resurrected on a Sunday. So we believe, so we are told. Am I right? That's, right. that's, that's the timeline. And I feel like often we look from Christ's death very, very quickly to his resurrection, one and then the other, one and then the other. But there's a space between... And I know I love the work of Richard Rohr, and he often talks about liminal space. It's a space between. It's an uncertain space. So in our scriptures, we have written into that, that timeline a liminal space of Holy Saturday. And it's when Christ was gone. His body remained, but his spirit was no longer in it. He was dead. He had not yet been resurrected. And we have this day, this period of time where it was waiting and this is where I think of Mary Magdalene, beautiful Mary, who was his fervent disciple, who loved him dearly. She knew that he had died. She watched him die. I can't imagine the trauma of that. And she didn't know. She didn't have a firm answer that on Sunday morning, his body would be resurrected. She had hope. He'd spoken of it. But she didn't know that in a literal sense, he would rise from the grave. And I think of her on that 24-hour that period on that Saturday this liminal space of knowing that she loved him, that she followed him, that she believed in him, but not knowing the answers that would, would come. Probably not knowing that they would come so soon, the next day. 
And all she had was this golden thread of love. And I guess there's a theme here, but all she had was love. And I think of her tenderly probably putting oil on his body and weeping and loving and pleading. And again, the beauty of us knowing the narrative that the next day she would have answers, that he would be made whole, that there would be clarity and purpose and vision. To me, we're living in a holy Saturday. We know the Savior. We follow him. We love him. We believe him. I believe him. I believe the leaders of the church. But I'm in a holy Saturday because the answers aren't all there yet. But all we have is love to get us to Sunday, which is coming, where I think suddenly we'll say, oh, my gosh, this makes sense. I get it now. And so I do fully subscribe to the church. I fully sustain the leaders of the church. And I also fully sustain my LGBT, fully, Richard. I mean, I can say this with all my heart. I fully love my LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And I want to be like Mary Magdalene and live in that space of love and uncertainty. But maybe it is the uncertainty that brings the most fervent love. So there's, those are my thoughts on a beautiful woman that we don't give enough street cred to in our church. <laughs> So in 60 years, I've never heard anybody talk about Saturday. Mm. And I've never thought that, I mean, the resurrection could have been the very next day. It could have been, yeah. um, But there's this day. Right. And and I love that you've, then the parallel to just this feeling we have more work to do as a church. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we do in the meantime is to love. Mm -hmm. And that's what Christ taught. And show grace to our leaders and just I think I think we need to give space for faithful Latter-day Saints that feel there's more work that needs to be done to meet the needs of the of our LGBTQ members. Sometimes culturally that feels like you're we sometimes shame those people. Mm-hmm. We say you're getting ahead of the brethren mm-hmm. or you're mm-hmm. gotta get in line or you're mm-hmm. and I think we just we can do what you know, Jenny's doing faithfully sustain and support our leaders, but recognize and not, but, Mm -hmm. but not a, but, Mm -hmm. but, and recognize we have more work to do to meet the needs of our LGBTQ members. I describe it as a 40 chapter book that we just, we are not at chapter 40. I don't know what chapter we're in and I don't know, but we just have more work to do. We have more work to do. And I, I like the phrase suffer the cross. Why? Well, I think it, to me, it means you're holding space for Jesus' suffering. He's doing work. He's done work. He will continue to do work. And we suffer his cross, I think, by holding with him, holding, waiting, persevering through this, you know, this, quote, Saturday, and doing his work, which all he commands us to do is love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. So I feel like one way I sustain him and in his suffering is, again, do his work, look for others, lift them, love them, lie with them, plead with them, cry with them. That's suffering his cross with him. That's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm just so touched by that. Talk about, um, you know, it's been 10 years since Emily came out and it's been a, a year and a half roughly since she died. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you'd go back and change anything from 10 years ago. And Again, this is really yeah. you talking to 
you know, those mm-hmm. of us that have people that might be coming out right now. I wish that I had communicated more face-to-face with her and said, talk to me. I'm here. Talk to me. I'm with you. I'm. Teach me. Teach me. I, I, instead, I just... I, I had, you know, I love you. That was it. That's all I could get. That's all I could give. But there wasn't action to support my words. So I think you can never, the closer you get to someone, you can't, I think Brene Brown says you can't hate someone up close, right? Is that her? Exactly. That's exactly. So I wish that I'd gotten closer and listened and, and looked into her eyes and heard her story. And, you know, I had a narrative that I, thought about what LGBTQ people were. And, you know, it was quote wrong in my, in my mind back then. And it was, it wasn't something I wanted to talk to her about. I'm being so honest, but I think that you've got to get close. You've got to get closer. If I could offer any suggestion for someone that maybe is battling what I battled for five years of Oh, that's uncomfortable for me. Oh, I can't talk about that with her. Oh, that's out of my, you know, it's out of my comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out. Get out. That's where the work needs to happen. I love that. And um, talk about um, what just, I want you to just anything else you want. I've got another question for you. What is Emily teaching you now? But are there other things you'd like to share Before we ask that question. You know, maybe I would share just, we, we were talking of Emily's journey through mental illness and her journey as an LGBTQ community member. But I also maybe feel, especially in this month that we're recording September, it's national suicide awareness month. This time of life is really hard. It's hard because of COVID. It's hard because of the economy. It's hard because of racism and divided political temperatures. And I, I just would encourage everybody to be aware of your friends that, that might be hurting. I think suicide is, again, it's, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but be willing to really check in, be willing to go a little deeper than just the superficial. I think we, we stay safe with superficiality and In this season, there's no more room and there's no more time for that. So in in honor of Emily and in, you know, advocacy for suicide prevention, we have to be willing to be vulnerable and go a little deeper in our care for others. And I think that's something she would wholeheartedly agree with. Um, I have a chapter in the book called Ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints Mm -hmm. and one of the sections in that chapter is the importance of listening. And mm. the church is, um, has given um, bishops um, a suggestion when someone comes out to you to ask these questions. And these would be the same questions coming back to what you could ask Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are questions that I think any of us could ask at lunch or, mm. you know, in a trusted situation mm. with a child or mm. a sibling. Um, and notice that all these are don't, you can't give a yes or no. I don't think any of these questions, Jenny, Mm -hmm. will you please tell me more about your experience? 
what is it like for you? Hmm. How have these feelings affected your life? How have they affected the lives of friends and family? How can I help you? How can I help you? What a great question for, in this case, it's a suggestion for a bishop to ask an mm. LGBTQ member. Mm, that's beautiful. Would you like us to meet regularly to discuss this? Mm. Um, labels have different meaning for different people. What What do the words gay, lesbian, bisexual, SSA mean to you? And I think a follow-up question to that is how would you, what label would you like mm. me to? Some so LGBTQ sensitive. people don't want a label, but mm. some do, and mm-hmm. it helps them to um, take on a label. So... I note in, and then my words here, note that none of these questions live to reminders to live the law of chastity or to study the family proclamation, my proclamation world. My experiences or LGBTQ members are near experts on these topics. Mm. If needed, these conversations can come later after foundation of trust has been established. I love one of Ben Shalati's recent, recent bishops showed when Ben came out as gay, quote, Ben, what do I need to know to understand that I can serve you better? Beautiful. So these are things that all of us mm-hmm. can do, and you've done this with Emily's, mm-hmm. especially starting with that lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts that come to your mind, Jenny? Well, I like the idea of asking how you can help, but I also, back to the humility that accompanies love, if we're talking for the first time to someone that's coming out to us or someone that's close to us that has come out, I think it's also important to say, how, how can you help me? <laughs> help me, and how can I help you? So it's a mutual growth instead of one helper and one receiver. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. It's a two-way street. Would you like to share any thoughts about, um, she was cremated. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to share any thoughts about the funeral, about just bringing closure around her death, just insights into who she is and your feeling of your mission that became more clear after her death? She had expressed a desire to be cremated. And I will just say that on the day of her cremation, I had the beautiful and holy opportunity under the complete direction of the spirit to write a letter to her along with my two other sisters. And this letter was, placed under her hands and was with her as she was cremated. So I feel that it's probably the most holy thing I will have ever written. And in that letter, I asked her to be with me in this life, the rest of my life, and to help me know who and how to help. I I do feel like that propels me. There's energy in that that's changed me. It's it's hard to describe, but I am not the same person and I, I won't be for the rest of my life. There's this urgency, a sacred urgency that, that that letter and her, I think her helping me honor my promises to her, it will, you know, it will write the rest of my life. It will shape and direct it. Whose idea was it to write letters? One of my sisters. So the three of you went to the mm-hmm. cremation. Mm-hmm. I don't even know the right vocabulary. Yeah, we did. And the we three went. of you wanted to be there because yes. I guess theoretically the funeral home or the mortuary could do that without family around. I don't know what the norm is, but the three of you felt impressed you wanted to be there. We felt that we wanted to be close to her. Close to her. We felt that, and I felt, I felt that it was, I felt that her spirit lingered with us until that day. And it was her 
you know, that night after she was cremated, I feel that maybe that's when she really left to go begin her work on the other side, which is big and beautiful. I know that. She's creating and expanding, and I, I just know it. She's not at rest. You know, she's at peace, but she's not resting. And I love her for that, and I feel her with me often. What a sacred thing you're sharing with mm-hmm. us. And what a great idea the three of you wrote letters then. Mm-hmm. It is sacred. It is. And it's it's tender for me, you know. <clears throat> and this experience sort of, I like some of the verbs you're using. These aren't mm-hmm. passive verbs no. you're using, Jenny. No. <laughs> These are in deep mourning with Emily being gone. These are mm-hmm. very proactive. I need to step in the space. I need mm-hmm. to, to make... Do you feel like this is part of your life mission or your life mission? And I'm determined that her death, as horrendous and tragic as it was, is will not be in vain. I want to meet her on the other side and say, how did I do? And I hope that she'll say, well, I know how you did and you know how you did because I was with you all along. That's great. Because I was with you all along. Have you felt Emily's presence? Yes, I have felt her presence. Do you presence. want to share any of that with us? I might share one, one of the t- few times. Um, shortly after she passed away, my best friend lost her niece to suicide. So here we are, two best friends, both dealing, reeling with the tragedy of suicide within two and a half weeks. And my friend said, I know that you are so tender and so raw with grief, but please, please, will you fly to Arizona and play for the funeral? Emily didn't have a funeral. We had a celebration of life six months later, so there really hadn't been any closure yet. And for a day or so, I thought, there is no way I can do this. I can't do this. It's too much. And then a day later, I thought, how can I not do this? How can I not offer the gifts I've been given to a family that's suffering in this exact same way that I am. So I went to Arizona. I was, I mean, you can hardly stand. I I could hardly be vertical at this point still. And I knew she was with me, but I went to the viewing of my friend's niece. It was a hard day. And that night as I went to bed, preparing for the next day where where I would play music for several hours as people filed in and filed out and then played and accompanied the musical numbers of that day, I couldn't summon the courage and energy to even fathom how I would do that. And that night before, as I fell asleep, I felt Emily's presence. And this is really sacred to me, so I hope it will be taken with with grace and with kindness. But I felt her, and she said, I know what you're doing, and I'm I'm here. I'm with you. I'm I'm here. And I knew it. It wasn't a... It wasn't a wonder or a thought. It was her, and she was there. She knew that I'd gone to lift others in that same horrid state of grief, and I was able to do it, and I did it with the best of my ability, and in addition to the best of my ability, I had Emily's ability with me. So maybe I'll add that in the space that's passed between her death and now, I've had several performances that of sacred music that were important to me that I put my heart and soul into. And it's something I'm starting to see a pattern in. When I prepare 
to the best of my ability and only when I prepare and I'm giving my best, it's in those times that she comes and adds what I can't. And I can't expect it. And it won't happen if I'm not giving my best, but I think she meets me in the music. And I think she offers to people's hearts what maybe where I stop giving, she's able to amplify and add to. And I'll, I, I, I want to hope that that's somewhere we'll, where we will meet I love the that rest of my phrase, life. Jenny. She meets me in the music. Yeah. Do you feel like Emily's in a good place? I know she is in a good place. I believe that she, as she passed through this life, through the veil, it was a, an explosion of sparks of light. That's how I like to see it. And I see the sparks of light have descended on me from her passage through the veil. And I think she's in a good place. I think she's doing marvelous work. I think she has a special love for one of my sons and she's with him. That's great. Mm -hmm. Talk about, talk to people that may be suicidal right now. Mm. What would you say to them to keep them to, to help them to feel like they can stay? I would just say that sometimes I think we lose our sense of worth. I think we become so ill and so sad and so dark and so broken that we don't see the value in, in our worth. So I might say to someone that feels suicidal, that maybe thinks tonight, I can't do it anymore. Just hold on for one more day. And I really do believe that God sends angels to minister to us. And sometimes I think, as Emily said, she's, it's the other broken people in our world Sometimes I think it's a divine manifestation of the spirit. Sometimes I think it's a family member or a friend. But there's always going to be an angel tasked to you. I believe it. And I, I pray and hope that people will recognize that there is a reason to hold on and that they are worth it. It's a great answer. And <clears throat> I just, I think a lot about the same question. What can we say to people that, I've lost hope. One person described it to me as, because I would say there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and mm. that person very painfully said, there's no light at the end of my tunnel. I know. I, I feel that, and I've heard and that from Emily. You've I, heard that. The last time I saw Emily alive, she was in a psychiatric, you know, critical care facility, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, my level of hopelessness is about at an eight. And of course, she's always so cl clinical and able to analyze herself in the midst of pain. But I just want to let people know that someone's always there. And reach out to me. If I'm, I'll give you my Instagram. To DM me if you're in that place. I, I will walk with you. I will listen to you. And I will, I don't know, I'll play music for you. <laughs> That's kind of sometimes what I say. It's all I have to give. You but. give, we're going to talk about music in this last segment. Um, I love that. And one of the sections of the book, I don't want to feel like I'm pitching books no, here on this I, podcast. No, it's a beautiful but, book, Richard. Um, I do talk about this subject of suicide. Mm. It's, it's part of the book and it, it brought me into the space, the mm -hmm. suicide of a young man who I've dedicated the book to. Oh, that's beautiful. And all mm. the royalty proceeds are being donated to his memorial scholarship, Stockton Powers. Oh, wonderful. Oh, Richard, but, that's wonderful. 
One of the things I did on Twitter one day is I asked, and you can read this in the book, I said, all of you that have been suicidal but aren't now, what would you tell to people that are? Wow. Wow. How interesting. I've been trying to, I'm not very good at word searching because I've been looking in the book to try to find it, but I'd read some of those, but you'll have to, if you want to read, they'll have to go to the book. But there's some really thoughtful answers from people that know that road. So I agree with what you're saying, Jenny. And I would just invite, you know, you've got to stay. You've just got to take it one day at a time. This one world, hour. One hour. hour at a time. And my experience in these responses um, say that there will be light at the end of the tunnel and then there will be better days. And I would say your best days are ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And um, But if you've gone, if you're dealing with a loved one that's died by suicide like Emily, I love what you're teaching. Mm. And I love... What Emily can conti- how Emily continues to bless. Talk about this song. Um, okay. <laughs> tell us um, wh- about this song. Well, I I've written a, several primary songs. Primary songs, I guess, for people that might not be members of our faith. It's songs for children. It's sacred music for children. This is my sixth primary song, and I I can't tell you with accuracy the way it really was formed in my mind. It's, I can't, (laughs) I won't be able to describe it well, but it was three months after Emily passed away. And I, I wasn't in a creative space. I wasn't in that mindset to create something. And I feel like when I've created sacred music, there's always been light and energy around me. And I wasn't feeling that way at all. I was really suffering and I remember sitting at an indoor pool watching my youngest daughter in her swimming lesson. And I felt very powerfully and very unexpectedly, uh, almost like a wind, like there is another song. There's another song and it's, it's going to be about worth. And I, I, I was sort of taken aback by that. And then, you know, in the days and weeks following that, this little song took shape. This is a really simple song. It's called, He Knows Me. And I wanted to say two things about it before I explain the song itself. One, I think in our uh, repertoire of sacred music for children, there's many beautiful songs that are true and pure, but they leave us with the feeling that worthiness is conditional, that we have to earn it. And we do it and we do this and we do that. And we, you know, and they're all good things. We all want to do good things. Teach me all that, you know, I don't want to quote songs because I don't want to, I don't want to put them in a category where I, I'm criticizing because I'm not, but I started thinking, wait, we don't have enough about worthiness being intrinsic and not conditional that you are worthy because you exist you are made by a divine maker. And I started to think, oh, there's children who suffer abuse for prolonged periods of time. There's children who are refugees and have no stability and have no structure or support. And there's children who are broken with mental illness, feel broken. Children who have physical illnesses that are prolonged. And I thought, gosh, there, there isn't a song that's for them. So this little song kept taking shape and I feel so strongly that Emily was, was sitting with me and tapping me and pushing me. And 
the other thing that I really wanted to make clear in this song is that a lot of children's music, I think, goes over their heads a little bit. The words, it's, it's adult vernacular that children sing. So it's beautiful and sweet and pure. But how much do the children really understand about what they're singing? Sometimes they do. It's all important doctrine. But I thought this song has to be words that children get on, on the first the first run through of this song. So as I was writing it, and it's very simple, it's not a musical masterpiece, Richard. It's just simple. And I kept feeling there's too many words. There's too many words. There's too many syllables. There's too much. Cut, cut, cut. And I had to cut it and cut it and cut it until it said the bare minimum, but still expressed the beauty of being worthy because you are. <laughs> you were made by God. So maybe I, I mean, you're going to play this song that my daughter recorded, and I, I hope that it will help someone feel love from God. That's my hope. I hope that it will help someone that isn't sure, maybe someone that's feeling broken. Um, do you mind if I just say the words? That'd be great. So the words are as simple as can be, and they are this. Jesus came to live on earth and show the way. His love is real. His love is deep. He knows my name. When I am sad, when I'm afraid, when I'm alone, when I'm in pain, no matter what, no matter when, no matter how long it's been, he knows me, he hears me, he loves me. And then the second verse says, every time I say a prayer, not when, or if, I first wanted to say, if I say a prayer, but no, it's every time I say a prayer, he comes to me. I feel his love through others who he sends for me. And then the chorus, when I am sad, when I'm afraid, when I'm alone, when I'm in pain, no matter what, no matter when, no matter how long it's been, he knows me, he hears me, he loves me. And I, I, I attribute it to Emily. I think she was intimately involved in this. I think she shaped it. I think she, I mean, I really believe this. I do. So I, it's sort of my offering in this time. It's what I can give and it's what I believe. You know, I think it encompasses many things that aren't sung or spoken about enough. I just have a big smile on my face. <laughs> um, when I listen to this song, I've listened to it a couple times. I've I've wrote down, I've underlined these the melody or the chorus. Mm. He knows me, he hears me, he loves me. Those are nine words. Mm. He knows me, he hears me, he loves me. That's like a whole Sunday school lesson. That's the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it describes our relationship with heavenly parents. That's unconditional. He knows me. That means, I mean, he created me. Of course he knows us. He knows everything about us. Right. He hears me. He loves me. 
I'm, I, I like thinking of it as he loves me no matter what. He I, loves me no matter when. He loves me no matter how long it's been, whether it's how long I've suffered or how long it's been since I've come to him. He loves me no matter what. And that is our doctrine. And sometimes I think we create conditional relationship. We, I love the way you set this up. And I, I just believe so strongly that our worth is set. Sister Amy Pearson coined this on a podcast. My worth is set. Everything else is experience. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I just believe our worth is set because of our doctrine of spirit children of heavenly parents that love us. We don't earn it. We don't earn we it. We can't earn it. There's and, nothing we could do to earn it. And there's no fear in your lyrics. Um, it doesn't take um, obedience off the table. It doesn't take self-improvement. It doesn't take no. progress. But I think we do better on all of those mm. when we start with this feeling you're sharing in this song. He I knows agree. me. He hears me. He loves me. That has to be first. And That's the foundation. Then we do so much better I have an article coming out in the digital version of the October YSA digital version mm. of the Ensign, and it's basically, it's an article about pornography, mm. and it's not an article to stay off pornography. There's plenty of those, and I think our YSAs know that. Mm -hmm. It's an article of if this is part of your journey, you know, how do you work through that? But there's no shame. I tried to write that with wow. no shame, Jenny. I tried to write it using the very things you're te teaching, because mm. I think... Satan doesn't win <laughs> if we sin. Right. Um, he wins if he can separate us from these three things. Right. He right. wins if he can separate us from the idea that he knows me, he hears me, and he loves me. Right. The Heavenly Father knew we would sin. It's part of mortality. I'm not inviting people to sin <laughs> in that article or in this mm -hmm. podcast. It's the reality of mortality. Right. Um, but these things are the reality of the of what Christ taught and our doctrine. He knows me, he hears me, he loves me. And if you're LGBTQ, mm -hmm. he knows that about you. And I don't believe he's embarrassed about that part about you, just like about Emily and about your response to Emily at lunch. I believe he created you by design. Mm -hmm. I don't think he makes mistakes. So he's not looking at your gender identity or sexual orientation right. is a mistake. Now, right. that doesn't take church teachings off the table, but it just puts everybody on the same moral footing. Right. So you and Emily are on the same moral footing. Oh, yes. Oh, Emily's my teacher. She's your teacher. <laughs> She's my teacher. I think I, that um, I, I put the subtitle under He Knows Me. The subtitle is A Song of Comfort for All of God's Children. All not only the members of the church, not only the ones that are checking the boxes on their, you know, scripture reading, not only the ones that come from a, you know, family unit that looks pretty on the cover of an ensign. This is the song that I would hope would reach every one of God's children in any circumstance. I love that. A song of comfort for all of God's children. I love that this is a primary song. To mm -hmm. me, um, it's, a tr it's a song for everybody, but I love the way you've couched it as a primary mm -hmm. song because I think that's where our beautiful, powerful, simple doctrine often exists. I agree. In primary lessons, in the testimonies mm -hmm. of primary children, in their hearts, mm -hmm. 
they don't have any ability to not love everybody. They don't see color. They don't see anything. They're all taught um, about, you know, groups that we potentially shouldn't love. They come loving everybody. But they, they need to know that they too are loved. True. And especially the children are loved. (laughs) As you... As I was reading the lyrics of the song, I Googled one of my favorite. I've, I haven't referenced this on the podcast ever. It's an Elder Uchtdorf quote mm-hmm. um, from 2015, his April conference talk titled The Gift of Grace. Mm-hmm. And he says, salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. Mm-hmm. It is purchased with the blood of the Son mm-hmm. of God. Right. And to me, that's mm-hmm. really a sister quote to your song yeah. is, um, you know, so. It's the it's the it's the atonement of Jesus Christ that makes everything that you're teaching in a song possible. Right. It's not necessary the currents of obedience. Right. It's not a checklist thinking. It's not a conditional plan that makes these three things possible. Right. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful quote. Just so touched by this song, we are gonna. Um, you know, after I sign off on the podcast, we are going to, that'll be come on right after I sign off. Um, and we'll link to the lyrics in the podcast copy. Are there other things you'd like to share, Jenny, that we haven't gotten to? No, Richard, I think we've covered a, a beautiful amount of, of my heart and thoughts. And I just maybe would end with thank you for what you give. I've listened to your podcast for a long time and it's it's helping people love better. And that's, that's it. Like we've said today, we have to love better. So thank you. Thank you, Jenny Richards. And thank you for your beautiful life mission, for your commitment to our church, to our LGBTQ members. I love the way you recognize we can do both. I think we sometimes get a false dichotomy that to fully love and follow God or our church, we need to stop loving some of his children. But if we look at you know, the great commandments, there's not, you know, they're equal co-commandments. Uh-huh. And I think we're actually wired that way. I think we want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're learning how to do that. But often it takes people explaining like you're doing so that we know how to do that. And we're not crossing a line to be with and support and love LGBTQ people, no. but we're actually following the doctrine of Christ. So Please listen to this song. It's about three minutes, uh, maybe the next segment on the podcast. And Jenny Richards, thank you for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Thank you, Richard.
me. Mm-hmm.